Let's read the word of the Lord. Revelation 2, beginning at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have persevered and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, Lord, I want to thank you for your presence that we've sensed. We do not take that for granted, but we are grateful. And now, as we come to share this time of the preaching of your word, I ask that you will give us ears to hear not so much what the preacher is going to say, but give us ears to hear what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the preaching. Give me clarity of thought and of speech so that I can proclaim your truth with boldness in a manner that will not be distracting from what you want to say. I lift up other life-giving churches and I pray blessing upon them today. I lift up our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you and I pray especially for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith. I ask you to send the Holy Spirit after them so that not one of them will be lost. I thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing. I pray all of these things today in the only name that matters, the strong name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. As a pastor, I'm often interested in some of the reasons people give for not reading the Bible or for viewing it as, not viewing it as any kind of authority in their lives. I hear things like, well, you know, it's old, it's outdated, it's irrelevant. Some view the Bible as nothing more than a collection of fables. Others may call it good literature or perhaps musty history, but that's about as far as it gets. In their mind, it surely contain, contains nothing of value to living life in these modern times. That sentiment seems to be especially prevalent when talking about the book of the Revelation. Even some Christian believers approach this book in very limited terms. They want to limit this book to prophecy some think of it only in terms of judgment and rewards. They relegate its meaning to some distant time in the future. 
Whenever a message begins with a text from the book of the Revelation, there seems to be a sense of foreboding and even fear because of the mysterious symbols and the strange visions and the dramatic descriptions of beasts and plagues and judgment that is decreed. And it's true that this, be, this book does speak prophetic words concerning the end times and There are a lot of passages that are challenging to understand. But when you really examine this book, what you find is that this is a book that reveals Jesus. And it is a book that contains the last message of Jesus Christ to his church. Last week, I began this series with a message from chapter 1, and in that chapter, beginning at verse 11, the beloved elder John writes and says that he was instructed by the Lord Jesus to write to seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. These churches to whom he is instructed to write are seven actual historical churches that existed in Asia Minor. At the same time, these seven churches have a spiritual significance and correspond to seven different spiritual conditions that existed in the church of the first century and continue to exist in the church today. In addition, as you begin to understand the message of this book, you see that it is also a message of personal significance. In each of the letters the Lord instructs John to write to the seven churches, there is a personal application. There is a message he is trying to get through to the people who are part of the modern church of the 21st century. The message he speaks historically, the message he speaks prophetically, is also the message he gives to each one of us personally. Throughout the book of the Revelation, in the midst of the thunder and tribulation and wrath and praise and worship and new beginnings, the message the Lord speaks is the message that says, you can be an overcomer. Each one of these letters to the seven churches ends with a promise, to him who overcomes. And in that promise, there is an assurance that there is an overcoming power that is available to you no matter what hardship you may face. Somebody ought to just say, thank the Lord for that. That word overcomer means to be superior. It means to be victorious. It means to be a winner, to be overwhelmingly successful. And there's an interesting feature about the way this word is used. It isn't used in the context of you being able to accomplish any of this by yourself. You know, you work really hard and you learn a lot of stuff and then you're able to do it. Instead, this word has a divine connotation and it's used in the sense that God does all the things through you. And what that means is that if you're to have a superior life, if you're to have a victorious life, a winning life, a successful life, then it has to be done through Christ in you. Jesus is the conqueror, and if Jesus is the conqueror and he is in you, then you are a conqueror because Jesus 
is superior, then you have the superior life. Because Jesus is victorious and you are in Jesus and he is in you, then you have a victorious life. Because Jesus is a winner and he is in you, then you are a winner. Because Jesus is successful and he is in you, then you are successful. In him, you are a conqueror because he has given you the overcoming life even in the midst of defeat. Now, does that sound like anything you'd like to have today? Anybody looking for the overcoming life? When you come to the text we read just a few moments ago in chapter 2, the first thing I want you to see is that it is Jesus himself who is speaking this message to the pastor of the church and to the church. In verse 1 of this, he reaches back to the description that is found in chapter 1, and he identifies himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Those words serve as a reminder that he is among us. He is in us. He is with us. He says, I hold the messengers. I hold the pastors. That's the seven stars. I hold them in my right hand. I am among those of you who make up the seven churches. I am part of you. I'm right there with you. Now, you need to, be, you need to get that, that Jesus is right here right now. We forget that too often. We forget and we think, well, we're just coming to church and we're just doing the churchy stuff that we always do. No, Jesus is walking the aisles right now. Jesus is in the midst of his church. Not only is it important to know who is speaking, it's also interesting to notice something about the city where this church was located to whom this letter is written. Ephesus was one of the main cities in the province of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. It had a population in those days of about 225,000 people. It was a commercial center between Europe and Asia. What it was really known for more than anything else was its temple to the goddess known to the Greeks as Artemis and to the Romans as Diana. That, ten, that temple was an architectural wonder. It was about 418 feet by about 240 feet. It had over 100 marble columns that were over 56 feet high. 35 of those columns had been handmade. Its doors were solid cypress. Its walls and columns were marble. The land on which the temple was built was kind of swampy, but the temple was constructed in such a way that it had a floating foundation that was virtually earthquake-proof, which was important because there were a lot of earthquakes in that section of the country. It was a magnificent structure, but with all of its grand beauty, it was an immoral temple because in it was a big, lewd image of Diana, who was the goddess of fertility. Ephesus was an immoral city. Ephesus was an impure city. Ephesus was a city that desperately needed God. Well, inside that immoral, impure city, there was a church. And I want you to notice what Jesus says about this church. First of all, he says it was a productive church. In verse 2, he says, I know your deeds. Second, he says it was a persevering church. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. Third, it was a pure church. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and they are not. You have found them false. Fourth, it was a persecuted church. He writes in verse 3 and says, but you have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. Fifth, it was also a positive church 
church. In verse 6, he says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So now watch this. Ephesus was a city that would be much like any of the major cities in our world today. Inside that city was a productive, persevering, pure, persecuted, positive church. Just when this church was beginning to feel pretty good about itself because of all of these commendations that the Lord Jesus is giving to them about how wonderful they are, that's when the other shoe drops and he issues a rebuke. The Lord Jesus says in verse 4, you got all this going for you, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. For all the positive attributes that were evident in this church, this church was defeated. This church was being overwhelmed by the evil surrounding them. They had lost the power they once had with God. They were just going through the motions. They were doing all the things they had always done, but they had lost the dynamic of the Spirit's power. They were out of contact. They were out of sync with God. Now, this is a message the Lord wants you to hear today. You see, when the Lord Jesus writes this message, he isn't talking to the unregenerate world out there. You do know that, right? He isn't talking to the folks who stayed home instead of attending church today. He isn't writing to the church down the street. This is the Lord's message to those who have gathered online and in this house today. What does he say? You have left your first love. That word left means to release, to let go, to leave behind. Implied in this word, in the way it's used, is a process. It didn't happen overnight. You didn't just wake up one morning and say, okay, forget that and go a different direction. No, no. It took place over a period of time, silently, imperceptibly, imperceptibly, like like erosion, It just gradually happened. In fact, you weren't even aware of it happening. It just sneaked up on you. When Jesus talks about your first love, he isn't questioning your devotion to the truth. Remember, he applauds them. He says, man, you tested those that claimed to be apostles and said they were, but you said, nope, you didn't pass the test. He didn't question their orthodoxy. He isn't questioning your involvement with the church and its ministries. He isn't questioning your loyalty to the pastor. He isn't even questioning your care and your concern for one another. But the pure, simple devotion to God and God alone is gone. In the process of holding tenaciously to doctrinal purity and commitment to a cause and enduring persecution, the first And most important love of life has waned. Listen, when you reach the place where corporate worship is little more than boring routine, when you reach the place where coming to church is just one more hassle, when you reach the place where prayer is a chore, when you reach the place where reading your Bible is little more than an exercise in discipline, When you reach the place where the forms and the names and the programs are what either keeps you going or hinders your participation, that's the point where you've lost your passion for God 
And that's the beginning point of the defeated life. What's missing is the singular devotion where you are obedient to the two great commandments identified in Luke 10, 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. When you talk more about the Lord than you talk to him, that's a sure sign you've lost your passion and you've left your first love. When you're so involved in good deeds that you do more for the Lord than you do with him, that's a sign you've lost your passion and you've left your first love. When you seek more for the blessing of God than you do the presence of God, that's a sign you've lost your passion and left your first love. The first step to losing the overcoming life is the loss of passion for the Lord and the loss of true love and care for those in the household of faith. It's the first step to the defeated life. Now, aren't you glad you shouted and rejoiced earlier in the service? Aren't you glad we had that time of doing that? So. But the, I, I do have some good news in the midst of all of this. The good news is that Jesus has not designed you for defeat, but he has designed you for victory. He has promised you can live the overcoming life. And in this letter, he not only identifies the problem, but he also gives the steps to take that will get you past the problem and back into the overcoming lifestyle. And I want to share those three things with you very quickly before we get out of here today. The first step to restoring this passion and becoming a participant in the overcoming life is to remember the positives. He writes in verse 5, therefore, remember from where you have fallen. These Ephesians had forgotten all the positive things that God had done for them. They forgot all about what happened back in Acts chapter 19. You know, they forgot about the day that the Apostle Paul came and preached to them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues and they prophesied under the anointing of God. They forgot how that Paul taught them for two years and in that time they became so rooted and grounded in the faith until they had come to, they had one of the most balanced and one of the most dynamic and powerful churches that was organized during that period. They forgot about the tremendous revival that struck Ephesus right at the very heart and swept over that city insomuch that miracles were wrought from handkerchiefs and aprons that were taken from Paul's body and everyone that touched them and everyone that those, those fabric pieces touched was either healed or delivered of their evil spirits. They forgot the conviction that came upon the hearts of men until that city of 225,000 strong was proclaiming in the streets, Jesus Christ is Lord. They forgot that all the sorcerers and the followers of Diana brought all their sorcery materials and their evil scrolls and burned them in the city square. They had gotten so caught up in their toil and their persecution and enduring hardship and striving for doctrinal purity. They forgot all those things. They forgot about the power powerful relationship they had with the Lord. They forgot about the miracles in which they walked and lived when they first came to faith in Jesus. And I want to tell you, this is the danger for you today. The danger is that when you look back over your life, all you can do is let the devil bring up the negatives. When you pray, all you do is talk about the problems. 
You spend your time bringing up all the difficulties. You focus on all the things you want to be different and all the things you want to change. You focus on the ones that hurt you so bad and you focus on the wounds that you carry and you, and you feel victimized by it and you don't know what else to do with it. I want to suggest if you'll begin to acknowledge the blessings God has brought into your life, you'll find you have a whole lot more positives than there are negatives. You'll find you really are blessed. You found you really are victorious. You'll find you really do have power. I'm talking to some people who need to take a few moments and look back over your life and you need to call to remembrance the good things of the Lord. Why don't you look back over your life and remember the times God answered prayer for you? Why don't you remember the times when you prayed and God said no and that it was the best answer he could have given for your life? Why don't you remember the times God came to your rescue? See, if it had not been for the Lord, we would have already had your funeral. If it had not been for the Lord, you would have already been written off. If it had not been for the Lord, you would have already lost your mind. If it had not been for the Lord, you would have been totally abandoned and forsaken. But God has been good to you. God has been faithful to you. God has helped you. God has blessed you. So why don't you go back into those memory banks and remember the joy you felt when you first knew that your sins were forgiven? Why don't you remember how the Word of God seemed to literally jump off the page as you read it, and it seemed God was speaking just to you? Oh! Why don't you remember the excitement you had at the thought of going to the house of the Lord for worship? If you'll just start remembering, you'll start recapturing that first love feeling when you begin to remember the positives. The second thing he says you've got to do is not only remember the positives, but you've got to repent of the negatives. It's right there in in verse 5. Repent. Now, we sometimes wish he hadn't put that repentance thing there. Come on. But there's only one way to solve the negatives of the past. That's to repent of them. The Bible is very clear when it uses this word repent. It really means to be transformed, to be transfigured, to change your form, to change your thinking. This was the message of the Lord through the prophet in Ezekiel 18.31 when he spoke to Israel and said, get rid of those evil offenses and get a new heart and a new spirit. What he's really saying is, repent. That was the message of John the baptizer in Matthew chapter 3 verse 5. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the message of Jesus in Luke 13 and 3. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That was the message Peter preached in Acts 3.19. Repent and turn to God so your sins can be wiped out, so the time of refreshing can come to you. Let me tell you, the reason you don't live in the refreshing is because you haven't learned to live the repentant life. You haven't learned to live the changed life. You haven't learned to live the transformed life. You haven't learned to live the different thinking life. See, the word really means to change your mental set. It means to turn around and go in the opposite direction from the one you're traveling. It means to bring your actions into agreement and and into alignment with God's word. You see where you've strayed. You see where you've broken fellowship. You see where you've become occupied with other things so that your passion for God has waned. And when you see where you are and then you see where God wants you to be, 
Do something about it. Repent. Turn around. It's an imperative, meaning don't wait. It's urgent. Don't put it off. Don't wait for a more convenient time. Do it now. Let me tell you, we hear messages like this, and, and, and we're listening to the preacher preach, and we go, okay, well, when the invitation is, is given, then I'll, then I'll do that. You know, when we sing about four or five verses of just as I am, and everybody's caught up in the moment, then I'll repent. No, right now, you don't have to wait for an invitation. You don't have to wait for somebody to say, raise your hand if you want to pray a sinner's prayer. No, no, no. Right now, you just turn your mind around. You just make change your thinking. Say, I've been following my way. Okay, God, I'm going your way. I'm not going to go my way anymore. I'm going to go your way. In that moment, that's when it happens. When you remember the positives and repent of the negatives, then you have to take the third step. Return to the basics. He says in verse 5, therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent, and watch this, and do the deeds you did at first. Love God. Love one another. Those are the basics. Well, I thought there was a whole lot more. No, not a whole lot more. Just love God, love one another. See, the high praises can't come until you come back to the basics. The overcoming can't happen until you come back to the basics. There's no need to praise God if you haven't repented and aren't living in agreement with his word. Yes, I said it, and I'm not backing up from it. There's no need to praise God if you aren't living in obedience to his will and his way. It's true there's power in praise. But praise works because of the obedience that has preceded it. Praise is a reward of obedience. And praise is a reward of repentance. When you lose the basics, then you lose the praise. When you lose the basics, then there develops this kind of spiritual arrogance that allows you to excuse and justify things that take you further and further away from the source of life and hope. Some of you are doing stuff, and you've got all the reasons why it's okay. And the Lord is standing over here on the side going, nope, not okay. Oh, you don't think the Lord does that? Oh, yes, he does. Nope, not okay. Returning to the basics means that you want his divine presence more than you desire the blessing or the power or the anointing or the miracle. The Lord issues a warning here in verse 5, and he says, if you don't repent and return to the basics of loving God and loving one another, he says, I'm coming to you. And will remove your lampstand out of its place. Now think about this. Remember what he said. I'm in the midst of the churches. These seven churches are the lampstands. I'm walking in the middle of them. But if you don't repent and return to the basics, I'm going to take your lampstand out of that place. 
The image is stark and clear. The Lord is in the midst of the lampstands, but if you don't repent, return to the basics, your lampstand will be removed. It's a picture of a broken relationship. I don't feel like I'm doing a very good job of this this morning. I'm not, I'm not getting through to you guys. Help us, Holy Ghost. I, I, I don't have words to describe the terror of being removed from his presence. The awesome awfulness of being removed if you don't repent and return to the basics. However, if you respond to the invitation, there's a promise in verse 7. It's a promise of overcoming. He says, if you'll do this, to him who overcomes, watch this, I love this picture, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. You know, the tree of life is first introduced in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. Adam and Eve, you remember, ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that brought sin into the world. And that first couple was cast out of the garden And an angel with a flaming sword was put at the entrance to keep them from going back into the garden to prevent them from eating this tree of life. There's a whole whole message there I'd like to preach, but I don't have time to preach that one and finish this one. So we'll just kind of leave that for another day. That tree of life, though, it's, it's, it's little more than a shadow through the rest of the Bible. Until you come to this passage in Revelation where that tree is restored. When you really get a handle on that tree of life figure, you find it again in chapter 22, verse 4 of Revelation. And there Jesus tells us that the tree of life is going to be there on that day when we all are joining in worship around the throne of God. He says it's going to be by the river of life. It's going to yield 12 different kinds of fruit. And they're going to come every month. The leaves of that tree are going to be for the healing of the nations. And then when you get down to verse 14 of that chapter, it says... It says that those who have washed their garments in the blood of the Lamb, they're going to have the right to that tree of life. They're going to be able to enter into the city by the gate. The really exciting part I want to tell you today is that you don't have to wait for the sweet by and by to experience the tree of life. Because we have the tree of life right now. The image of the tree of life is in reality a picture of the Lord Jesus. He is the tree of life. The tree of life has come out of the death of Jesus Christ. And that tree blossomed when he rose from the dead on the third day. That tree brings us the fruit because he's at the right hand of God making intercession to the Father for us. The overcoming life comes because he is the overcoming. And in him we live and we move and we have our being. I want to tell you today all of your wounds, all of your hurts, all of your pain, it can be healed by the one who hung on the tree. He specializes in redemption and restoration. That's his specialty. The Lord is speaking today. He's saying return to that first love relationship. 
Don't ignore the call. Don't ignore the warning today. Don't forsake the promise. Don't get so caught up in the expedient that you lose the essential. We're so busy trying to manage life. Trying to manage all the stuff that comes to us. And we get caught up in that. And we lose sight of what's essential. What's really essential. Love God. Love one another. Be fully devoted to Him. Be all in for Him. Remember the positives. Has God ever done anything for you? Has God ever touched you? Has God ever blessed you? Has God ever helped you? Am I preaching to the right crowd today? You ought to remember those things. Never forget them. Write them down. Talk about them to one another. You know, we used to have testimony services. We kind of got away from that because people did stupid stuff. <laughs> You know it's true. Come on. We got tired of people standing up and saying, oh, the devil's been on my back all week long. Praise his name. <laughs> Y'all are laughing. I've heard people do that in testimony services. You grow up around Pentecostal churches, you'll hear a lot of stuff that you just go, nope, not that. But maybe we ought to bring back the testimony, but real testimonies. What God has done. Because I, I seem to remember in this same book, they overcame him that is the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. I know this is going to mess with some of you, but... but the enemy comes against your pastor sometimes. Some people don't think the pastor ever struggles with stuff. So that, you know, I hate to mess up your theology there, but there it is. But you know, one of the most effective things when he wants to slam me with something is to say, you know what? I see all that you're doing, but, you know, I remember... And I just start recalling times when God has gotten the victory. I can remember times when it looked like there was no way and suddenly a light broke through and a door opened up. Oh, there have been times when it was impossible until God got in the mix and suddenly it became not just possible but probable. See, I, I, I've been doing this way too long for you to try to tell me that it doesn't work anymore. I've seen God do too many things. I've seen him open doors. I've seen him heal bodies. I've seen him comfort those that were brokenhearted. I've seen him put relationships back together. I've seen time and time and time and time again how God has intervened in, the, in behalf of his people. You can't tell me God does something other than that. And when I start recalling all of the good things that God has done, first of all, it magnifies the Lord. I, I'm trying to wind this down. I'm trying to land this plane, but I'm, but I'm, 
I need to make one more pass over the runway, okay? Because what happens is when, when, when stuff happens in our lives, what do we do? We start focusing on the negatives. And the moment we do that, what do we do? We, 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 we magnify it. Because that's all we can see. And it looms like this huge mountain up in front of us. But when I start remembering what God has done, where God has brought me from, I start focusing on Him. I start magnifying Him. I think that's why David sang, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. Because whatever I start magnifying grows. It doesn't make God any bigger than He already is. It just makes Him bigger in my sight. I can see more of Him, and I start magnifying Him, and suddenly I begin to realize He's so much bigger, so much greater, so much higher, so much, so much, so much grander than any mountain that tries to rise up in front of me. And when God gets big, mountains start to shrink. And I start living the overcoming life. Remember the positives. Repent of the negatives. Those places where you've just ignored God. You may think that you've done that too long. It's never too long and it's never too late to turn around. You cannot go so low. But what the Lord Jesus can reach you. Pull you back up. David sang it like this, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined his ear to me. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock. He made my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise unto our God. That's what he'll do for you when you repent of the negatives. He'll bring you up no matter how low you are, no matter how far you've strayed. He'll bring you out. He'll bring you out. And then when he does, return to the basics. Just, he sets your feet on the rock. Now go in the right way. Go his way, not your way. I've preached long enough. Today's the day for action. If you want to be an overcomer, it's time to return to a first love relationship with the Lord. And that's not just for people who are abject sinners out in the world somewhere. This is for us. This is for us. This is, this is for those of us who are believers today. Return to the Lord. Stand with me, please. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. I'm going to ask you to bow for just a moment. There are two groups of people that I specifically feel I should be praying for today in this service as we bring it to a conclusion. First of all, I want to pray for those of you that would acknowledge, Pastor, when you're preaching today, that's me. I've been wandering away from that close relationship with the Lord. No, you're not a bad person. You're just not as good as you can be and as he wants you to be. 
you've been wandering away. You've been, you've been focused on other things other than your relationship with him. And today you want to turn that around. If that's you, would you just put your hand up and put it right back down just so I can see who I'm praying for. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Number of hands, thank you so much. You can put it right back down. Thank you, thank you. Second group of people I feel like I need to be praying for today. Some of you are here and you say, Pastor, I have wounds and I have hurts and I need to be healed by the love of Jesus today. If that's you, would you put your hand up and just let me know who you are? Thank you. Oh, wow. Yes. Thank you. Now, would you dare to just believe that Jesus will do that? It has absolutely nothing to do with my praying ability. It has everything to do with Jesus' ability to touch you and to help you. Right now, in the quietness of this moment, would you just turn to Jesus and just give it to him and say, Jesus, I turn to you. I'm turning to you so that I can resume that close relationship. I realize where I've strayed and I'm turning back to you now. And if you've been wounded, you've been hurt, just say, Jesus, I need your healing grace to touch me today. Come into that, do a deep work right where I hurt the most. Give me the ability to forgive and heal that area that is broken. Come on, you pray that kind of prayer for yourself while I pray, would you? Lord Jesus, I lift up these people to you now. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that is at work in this place right now. Forgive us for ignoring you. Forgive us for turning our own way. Today, as a conscious decision of our will, we turn back toward you in repentance and in faith. Your promise is that if we would come to you, you would not cast us aside, but you would welcome us with open arms. So we believe your promise today, and we thank you for that. Out of all of the places we've been that have been displeasing to you, we, we come to you today, right now, Jesus. Restore us back to that first love relationship with you, I pray. And Father, I pray for those people who are hurting, they're wounded, they're struggling with that. Some of them have, have dealt with it for a long time and don't know how to get past it. But now, in this moment, I'm praying that you break that chain by the power of your Spirit. You release them from that hurt and you heal them and make them whole. Lord Jesus, we, re we believe you and we receive it from you. For you are the mender of broken hearts. You are the restorer of shattered dreams. You are the one who takes all of our mess, turns it into a miracle. I thank you for doing that today. 
thank you, Jesus, for hearing our prayer. We don't ask for a sign. We don't ask for a feeling. We simply agree with your word. 